is not a being. Paris is a feeling. And when I know that I'm going to Paris, and I never, t- I never tire of Paris, and I never tire of France like I don't tire of Champagne. The, the minute I get on that plane, the feeling when I know that I'm an hour out, I have this awakening of myself. I have this feeling that I'm born again. I have an, a feeling of aliveness. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk right and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Champagne for everybody. It's my favourite saying. I have to admit, really, it is. No, seriously, champagne for everybody. I need some now, okay? Mm. But as I don't have any a bottle at hand, it's in the cellar and it's raining, so the stairs are a little slippery, I can't go and get one. So instead, we'll talk about champagne. From the region to the drink, there's so much to discover. And today's guest, well, she's an expert, in fact, on champagne. There is nothing like a day, nothing in this world. So I thought, who better than to talk about all things champagne than the champagne dame? For those that aren't from Australia, you might not know our guest that I'm talking about today is Kyla. And Kyla Kirkpatrick is well-known to many Australians and hopefully by the end of this podcast, she'll be well-known to you as well. Kyla, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. What a pleasure. Talking about champagne, what a great topic. (laughs) I hope everybody listening rushes to the kitchen to get a glass of champagne. There's so much to talk about today. We've got, of course, champagne and also, very excitingly, your, well, I, I, I'm so excited. I just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get words out, but uh, I'm addicted to The Real Housewives, I have to say, and um, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But uh, just so that you know, everybody, Carly is uh, a Real Housewife of Melbourne. Mm. Oh, my God, do you see? I'm very excited about that. Um, it was hard for me. I didn't know whether I should do a podcast on French food or a podcast on Real Housewives. <laughs> but to save my marriage, I did a podcast on French food. But to begin with, I wanted to talk, get to know you, Carla, the person, a bit better. And your dad's Scottish and your mum is from Birmingham. But you were born in Bacchus Marsh. So how did mum and dad get to Bacchus Marsh? So... You're right. Dad's from Glasgow in Scotland, mum's from Birmingham, and their parents were 10-pound pomp, you know, so we got the golden ticket, everybody aboard the big boat, you know, 10-pound. Can you imagine travelling by boat on a 10-pound ticket to a country you've never seen before in your life? So that, that sums up my family. So my father's parents, bless them, and my mother's parents got on a ship, landed in somewhere in Melbourne and we're both in a hostel in Laverton and that is actually where my parents meet um, and there begins the sort of you know the story of our family so um, you know I know people have uh, have different um, stories and upbringings in, in certain economic situations but you know I came from a, a working class family um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's something that certainly shapes your life and gives you character. Uh, but that was that was my parents' upbringing. For those that might know, where's Bacchus Marsh? So if you're in Melbourne, it's due west, you know. And, and actually when I was got, I was born in Bacchus Marsh, I was raised in a little, I went to school in a little town called Melton, which is not so little anymore. It's outer western suburbs. It's 45, 50 minutes out of Melbourne CBD. 
Um, and, and, you know, there's this urban sprawl that's happening in every direction, Andrew, of Melbourne. You, you probably haven't seen it for some time, given COVID. But, you know, we have this incredible urban sprawl in every direction, north, south, east and west, but particularly west. Um, but we were very separated from the city. You know, we were very insular. Um, it was a simple life. But my way of escapism as a little girl was to read. And that really formulated my life story, you know. So I grew up in a family who were good people. Um, you know, there was no violence, there were no drugs, there were no sort of other issues that were going on amongst my socioeconomic class. There were lots of kids in my school that, that, that um, were less fortunate than me. But, you know, as a kid I was always a theatrical kid. You know, I would go in the cupboard and, you know, shake it around and put on an outfit and some fur coats and some stilettos and, you know, come out as you know, a character, you know, and I, I, I spoke in a certain way and I read and I performed and, you know, I used to ask if I could leave the table, excuse me, could I leave the table? And, you know, my parents were like, you just fucking leave, you know. It's just like we don't, we don't ask to leave the table. <laughs> you know, and it was all these um, highfalutin manners in my, there was all this, you know, I was just so, I was a passionate kid, you know, and, 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 you know, growing up in a simple family, you know, I didn't have a lot of books to read, so I would read the, the dictionary, I would read the encyclopedia, I read uh, the Bible, I read about theology, I read about archaeology, I read everything. And, and you know, this might seem like my upbringing is very different to the life that I lead now, but if you think about it, it's the formulation of interest, history, culture, religion, War, all the things I was reading about as a kid finally culminated later on when I discovered the world of champagne. So, you know, it's connected in some way. Amazing. All I read is cookbooks. <laughs> I'm not sure I could even get through the Bible, and let alone encyclopedias. Your dad, you mentioned, is, was is, was Scottish or is Scottish. Here's my chance. I've, I've, I've got some questions I've always wanted to ask ask someone that was Scottish but didn't want to offend them. And so I think I, I might ask you. I know I'm not going to offend you. But I've always wanted to know, starting with, it's does everybody really eat haggis? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, it's a family tradition. We drink. Really? What's it like? It's not something that you ate every day in Australia, but it's certainly something that I've had in my past. More traditional for us was a black pudding. You know, a black pudding or a blood pudding, that was a staple. And that was a Sunday morning, um, you know, tradition for our family. Haggis was served at certain family meals, but you know, more, more, more classically, more traditionally, more regularly was it was a blood pudding or a black pudding. Um, Scottish people eat lots of things, and I think it's a very, very wise decision to not tell the children what's in it. Um, that's the only way that I. <laughs> You know, as you get older, you're like, what's in that, Grandma? And like, oh, God, I wish I never knew. Um, yes, yes, we eat haggis, we ate insides. You know, you eat liver, you eat black pudding, you eat all sorts of the beast. Um, and, I, and I'm still one of those people where I, I get really cranky. What's the inside? It's the stomach lining. It's all bits. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't even know whether my, my grandmother kind of sugar-coated that, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm still not sure. I just know that it's not so... <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that you want to explain to a child under any circumstances. I remember my sister first found out what was in black pudding and I'm like, no, don't tell her. No, no, that's a mistake. Just, just shh. Have you um, actually been to Scotland? Uh, yeah. So, you know, when I 
when I when I left high school, um, I went to a very mediocre school, but I knew from a very early age that that reading, that knowledge, and this was something that was instilled in me in my from my grandfather, who was a very smart man, and my father, a very intelligent man. Read, 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 learn, absorb the world, you know, be cultured, know what's going on. And I finished with exceptional grades and I went off to university and, and did two degrees at the same time and then went off to work in London for a period of time and I had that opportunity then to go across to Scotland and, oh, my goodness, um, I, I've travelled back to Scotland you know, many times after that in a different economic class. You know, now I've got friends in Scotland who have country homes and so on. But when I went to Scotland for the first time, I think it was just so striking, the, the greyness, the, the depravity, the, the, the seriousness. And, you know, it was, it felt heavy. There was violence. There was drunken, disorderly behaviour in the pubs. There, there was a sense of um, split economic circumstances. You know, it was quite striking to me, and I'm sure that was even more prevalent at my father's age. Um, Scotland was beautiful and bleak all at the same time. Okay. The question I really, really want to know, and I've always wanted to try to find out myself, but for fear that I'd get hit, um, what do the men wear <laughs> under their kilts? I can. Surely you know Categorically this. tell you that it is nothing. <laughs> Look, oh. that is what happens when you get a stiff breeze going up there? Well, there's always a bloody stiff breeze. It's Scotland. The last time that I was in <laughs> <laughs> the last time I was in Scotland, it was quite funny actually. So I, I um, the man that I'm now with, and it's complicated. If you want to talk love lives, we can do that. But I know this is not necessarily about love and relationships. But my current um, can you entwine it into French food? <laughs> Maybe, maybe, but my current kind of bow, on again, off again bow, on our third date, I had this beautiful girl that I lived with, this gorgeous, gorgeous um, half Viennese, um, half German girl, and, and, and then he, she said, oh, you know, you're having great dates with this guy, can, can you bring a friend? So he brings this Scottish guy, and he's like, oh, you know, can I wear my hoodie, you know, and you know, and he's like, no, you can't wear your fucking hoodie. These are real women. Like, these are really hot women. Like, you need to, like, wear a jacket, for God's sake. Tidy yourself up and don't say whatever, you, whatever. don't say fuck. Anyway, so, you know, he brings this guy to dinner, this Scottish guy. We have this fabulous dinner, the three, four of us. And long story short, they get married. This striking, beautiful woman that is my best friend and his mate get married. So we go to their wedding in Scotland. And his family, a very um, successful family, um, and it is the most beautiful wedding, the most beautiful wedding. And he was talking to the Scottish guy. I come from the Scottish family. Couldn't understand a fucking word he said. Couldn't understand it. But at some point during the night when he was dancing, his kilt lifted up, and I can assure you that men do not wear underpants under their kilt. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Fabulous. I love what you just said then about the not being able to understand a word. So we have a Scottish butcher here uh, about half an hour from our town who has a farm. He grows everything on the farm. And uh, then he has a store in the farm as well so that you go and you buy your um, your meat there. And, and it's really fabulous. Like he only has um, uh, beef, lamb and pork and that's it. And uh, you go there and he talks Oh, for a good 15, 20 minutes with you. So there'll be people like waiting out the front of his shop. But it's on a farm, so it's not like it's really super high street busy, but it's always a line because he talks to you for 15, 20 minutes. But 
oh, lovely guy, Andrew, if you're listening, love you, love you dearly. But I'd never understand a word he you says. You're, you almost have to lean forward. You know, it's like it's like intense listening. You have to really, it's almost like you need to look away because in all senses, you need to close your eyes and just lean into it to get every word. I mean, even with my grandparents, oh, hen, oh, hen. I mean, I've been drinking whiskey since I was five, my goodness. Growing up in Australia, in Melbourne uh, in particular, was food as varied as it is now or when you were younger? Because the food in Melbourne is amazing at the moment. Food in Melbourne is amazing. And I didn't really discover food until I, I grew a set of wings and I left home. And um, for me, growing up in a family where um, we were a working-class family, so my mum was amazing with money. So my dad would bring home a paycheck every week in cash um, and then my mum had a series of envelopes and she'd put some money in gas and some money in petrol and some money in food and she would shuffle the envelopes every week. You know, God, God, she would hate me if she saw what I spent each week. But anyway, you know, and, and we, you know, she looked for cheap cuts of meat and we would have a meat and three veg meal every night and that became a staple for me. Every now and then she'd get adventurous and she'd sort of put something in the slow cooker but really food was very simple and it was about simple nutrition on a really tight budget to feed the family and it wasn't extravagant I never I had never been to a restaurant I've never been to a restaurant till I was like 18 or 19 years of age you know my daughter has been to the best restaurants in the world from New York to Paris and Melbourne I mean you know she says to me oh I need Spanish food mummy I need Spanish food you know we have to eat at Mobita I'm like my god you're eight you know I hadn't been to a restaurant since I you know when I was sort of 18 19 years of age so the way that I grew up, and that's the way I do tend to cook at home, there's a simplicity to it. It's about nutrition, it's about simplicity, and it's about um, speed, is not the way that I now live. And I really didn't discover food until my first trip to London, you know, where I was flabbergasted at the cost of what was put on the plate. It was almost unfathomable. We'll talk all things champagne soon, but before we do that, I wanted to focus on France for a moment. Um, how old were you when you first went to France? Oh, it would have been maybe 20. I think it would have been 20 in my first trip. So it's, it's, it's almost a bit surreal now, and I look back at that experience. I mean, my, some, some parts of my life have been surreal, and you know, I think as you get older and you look back and you're like, God, it was like a dream, but um, it was wonderful. So it was this kind of... I went to London, I was working, I followed a boyfriend, he was a DJ, um, I got a contract job at the NASDAQ in London. Yeah, between you and I, I think my boss might have had a, a bit of a fancy for me. Um, I went to Italy for a weekend with some friends and he warned me, he said, oh, you're a pretty young girl, the boys are going to be all over you. I'm like, no, no, I've got this, I've got this. He's like, don't go on your own, don't go on your own. I went on my own. And sure enough, it was like the men were so intense. Like they followed you, they serenaded you, they brought you flowers. It was just, it was too much, you know? And he said, if you get into trouble, call me. And sure enough, after three days, I'd done my dash, I called him, in his swooped, on a plane, took me out, and took me to Paris for the first time. And it's interesting. I, I mean, even thinking about getting on a private jet, you know, I was... Uh, you know, a girl who grew up in a very humble environment, I was 19, 20 years of age. Um, I remember distinctly that I, I was really upset because my mum had bought me a pair of leather gloves and a, a nice warm jacket for London. And I left one of my leather gloves in the chauffeur-driven car on the tarmac, right? And I got to the Ritz where we were staying 
and I was a glove shore and I remember going, oh, my God, I can stay at the Ritz, but I was worried that I'd left a glove behind. And when I checked into the hotel and my boss, which was much older than me, much more debonair, she was really rude with me. I didn't speak any French at all, so she was so rude to me. And I'm walking into this extravagant hotel and they were so rude to me. And, of course, we were in the penthouse and we had separate rooms, but I'm sure he might have liked that to be not the case. But that was my first experience in Paris. And he was like, don't worry, I've got this, I've got this. But I didn't speak any French at all. And I, I can tell you, Andrew, that life and the people, the restaurants in Paris were so different then, 99, to where they are now. The hospitality is different. The way the French greet you is different. You were, don't talk to me, you know, you, you, you subservient person from Australia. Now it's open arms. They understand that. There's a place for us there, but that was not the case on my first trip and I felt very out of place. There must have been such a sensory overload. I mean, I want to back up a little bit. You, your first time to Paris and you're staying at the Ritz. I mean, hello. Um, you know, it's it's beating my three-star experience in the Marais. But, like, it's would have been such a sensory overload because Paris is a sensory overload already. You know, you you're just walking around those streets. I mean... They say that the the top end of Collins Street is the Paris end of of Melbourne of Collins Street, but it's like, uh, no, there's nothing in Australia that matches Paris, right? There's just like it's just sensory overload. Paris is not a being. Paris is a feeling. And when I know that I'm going to Paris, and I never t- I never tire of Paris, and I never tire of France, like I don't tire of Champagne. The, the minute I get on that plane. The feeling when I know that I'm an hour out, I have this awakening of myself. I have this feeling that I'm born again. I have an, a feeling of aliveness that anything's possible. I have this complete kind of transformation of self and it's this energy. I, I, I plug into Paris like a Tesla plugs into a power pack, you know, like it enlivens me. And I never, ever, ever, and I made a promise to myself. I made a promise to myself. So, you know, now 15, 16, 17 years later of working in the champagne industry, I promised myself in the very early stages of my career that I would never, never, never lose the excitement of coming to Paris. I never would. And I still don't. And that is something, even now when I talk to you, I've got crawling skin, I've got a feeling of electricity in my body. Paris makes me alive. It fulfills me. Carla, as the Champagne Dame, like myself, you've had the honour of taking people to France on tours. What's your favourite thing about taking people on tours? So for me, my tours are about getting behind the closed doors of Champagne. So you know what's really interesting is that occasionally I, I've mastered driving in Paris and that's cool. Um, so now I drive to Champagne. But back in the day, yeah, um, that's a great feeling too. But back in the day, I used to take the train and I would sit on the train and I'd observe people, um, excited people from all nationalities, from all walks of life, from all economic classes going out to the Champagne region on the fast train with a air of anticipation. And my thought, my feeling was, oh, dear Lord, these people are going to arrive in Champagne and not experience Champagne like I can show them. You're going to get to Champagne and you're going to go to a handful of houses, the only few handful of houses that actually open the doors to the public. You're going to get a 45-minute whip around the cellar in a very generic tour with a Champagne tour guide that's done it 
45 times before you who's tired and pedant, I can tell you, I can give a better tour than her in any language, and give you two entry-level glasses of champagne and then you're out the door and that's your experience. Oh, my God, and I feel sorry for them. I do because for whatever reason, champagne being the most heavenly place on earth with some of the most exquisite treasures known to mankind, they don't really cater as well as for the general public as they should. Um, my tour is built specifically to get people into the champagne houses that you could never get into unless you're with a professional. Um, my tours are, are about gastronomic delight, so we don't do any visit without food, which a lot of houses aren't set up, so we bring in private chefs. And I don't do any visit unless it's with the heir of the empire, someone who's inherited the house or has the reins of the house or with the winemaker or the head of the house. So it's a very different experience. It's in depth. You know, it's the difference between speed dating and a proper date. I can't believe I've waited this long to ask you about this, but as a cast member of the Real Housewives of Melbourne, I just have to clarify something. Controversially, mm-hmm. I've never watched the Real Housewives of Melbourne. Ooh. Now, the reason being mm-hmm. is that I'm just so addicted to the American ones and I mistakenly watched The Real Housewives of Sydney once. Oh, God, no. And it's not the same. No, 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 no. But I've watched enough snippets to know how fabulous The Real Housewives of Melbourne are. So, look, I'm just – it's just on a back burner. It's just like it's there. It's on the TV. It's on the Cody. It's waiting to be watched. Oh, and watch it. I will get to it. But do it, do it with a whole bottle of champagne. I absolutely will. Why did you decide to go on the show? That's the first question I wanted to ask you. Well, the answer is that no one does decide. Because you didn't need to. No, no, no. And my first answer was between you and I and everyone who's listening was not yes. Uh, My second answer wasn't yes. My third answer wasn't yes. My fourth answer wasn't yes. Um, Many of my answers were not yes. Um, But obviously um, in my career um, I have grown a big following with, with women and I adore women, I cherish women. Um, and, you know, lots of, lots of gay men, am I allowed to say that? <clears throat> I have a great audience of fabulous men and fabulous women. Um, and, you know, the producer said to me, Kyla, come on, like, people love you. You're the story we want. You grew up in the western suburbs. You're a humble kid. You made good. You're self-made. You didn't marry a wealthy man. You know, you're really genuine. Your lifestyle is glamorous. People love Love, love what you do. Just show it to the world. Like you're what we want, you know, and, and what better story to tell than, than a story of success. Um, and that was really, and, and you know, the story was to me that, come on, we want some inspirational women. We want to turn the tide. Um, and that was, after much coercion, that was the, 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 the sort of motivating factor was that maybe I could be influential to some other people out there that, that might want to you know, break the tide of poverty and, and whatnot and, and pursue a career. Um, so I said yes. And um, let me tell you, it wasn't an easy experience. It was a tough experience. And I'm a, um, I'm a woman who has a lot of friends and I've, I've got close friends and I'm a woman who really adores other women. I think women are the most incredible beings on the planet. Um, but I have to tell you, <laughs> it was tough. I cried a lot. The Housewives is all about voyeurism and uh, fabulous people's lives. You touch on drama. You just mentioned that. You you had actual drama over your livelihood and your tours. How did that come about? Oh, it was all cod's wallet. So 
the long story short is that one of the women on the show knew one of my ex-partners who got caught cheating and then lied about it. And then he told her that he didn't cheat. And then she said, well, if you didn't cheat, then, you know, your whole career must be fabricated. I'm like, hang on a minute, I've taken over 300 people to France. Why don't you ask any one of those? I know. I mean, I know. I knew you before you were on the Housewives. Like, I knew you from doing tours for, for, before the Housewives. So, how did she come up with the idea that it was fabricated? Like, did she not have Google or the correct, internet? Correct. Correct. Yeah, she's very old. This woman. So, um, you know, clearly she's not just know how to work Google. Um, no, look, it's just the most ridiculous thing ever. So, she, you know, without, I, I mean, obviously I, I'm celebrating 17 years this year. I started my tours in 2013. I did four tours to France a year. It took 12 people a group. There's literally hundreds of people that I've taken to France. Um, you know, I was just literally before I spoke to you, I got off the phone to my boss at Louis Vuitton Mont Hennessy who hired me in 2006 um, from France, I might add. <laughs> so I've got a long history. And it's very well documented on the internet about my story in France. So, yes, for her coming to question me was um, not only ridiculous, but, um, yes, very controversial, what we say. Did that make you second-guess your decision? I mean, it's a bit out there. I, I mean, I've seen every episode of all of the American housewives. When somebody goes, you know, they always say, don't go after my kids, don't go after my family, don't go after my business. Like, that's going after your business. Did that make you second guess your decision of going on the show? She made. She went after my child, which wasn't air. She went after my partner, which wasn't air. And she went after my career, which was cut up. Uh, but I can tell you that there was there, all the promises they make. There was uh, no holds barred, shall we say? It was brutal. Mm. But I am meeting with my good housewives tomorrow. We're having lunch tomorrow with. Angelie and Sherry. So, you know, you want to talk about the best things? You you meet people who are beautiful. You're listening to Fabulous and Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive grade content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. On to today's topic, we're talking all things champagne. Before we talk about the drink, I wanted to ask about the region. And so apart from drinking champagne and the drink, what's fabulous about the region of champagne to other parts of France? So you know what's interesting is that I fell in love with the region before I fell in love with the wine. And a lot of women find this hard to believe. Um, but it's true, you know. So my upbringing was all about reading, it was all about, you know, delving into history, it was all about theology and it was one Sunday afternoon when I was reading a long-form article on Napoleon Bonaparte and how he was almost superstitious in riding his cavalry before war from Paris through the Champagne region and then liquoring his meta because he was convinced they were better, better fighters with valleys full of Champagne. And look, don't we all think we do things better on Champagne? <laughs> but what if it was the wrong way? 
What if that was the wrong way, like, to go? Like, that might really stuff up some plans if you're, like, you're a couple of days late because you went for a champagne to drink before going in the war. That's hilarious. It's a valid excuse. Love it. I loved his story. And if you look at my brand, you know, my online store, Emperor Champagne, it was it was named after Napoleon, um, this feisty little fellow. And I just love his story. And what I find fascinating about Champagne, can you name any other region in the world that has a history more fascinating, more powerful, connected with more interesting people than the region of Champagne? You know, Marie Antoinette, Napoleon Bonaparte, the Moethe Chandon family, Madame Picot, Madame Pommery, Madame Lily Bollinger. Name a region that had figures, the connection to Sir Winston Churchill and Paul Roger. And, you know, there's nowhere in the world that's more fascinating than Champagne. The history is electric. Pre-Napoleon Wars, Napoleon Wars, World War One, World War II, Philoxera. Um, the battle between their, the own, their own champagne like this is fascinating tapestry of history. And when I finally get a minute to breathe, I'll bloody write it, you know, but it is sensational, you know, and I'm a storyteller. I don't just turn up at a champagne tasting and serve you five glasses of champagne. No, no, no. I will take you out of where you are and back into time and tell every detail of the coat he wore and the, the colour of his shirt and the pen that he wrote and what he was doing and, 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 you know, the feeling and the sentiment, the history behind every house. And I will never, never, never tire of this business, this product, this region because of the rich history. It's wonderful. Is it a pretty region? It is pretty in the countryside. No, there's nothing. But here's the, here's the tough bit about Champagne. Poor Champagne is a region. World War One was fought within the Champagne region for four years, really didn't move five miles either side. Champagne was decimated, you know. It was decimated. The church was decimated. All the buildings were decimated. So you can, um, we lost a lot of chateaus. The chateau is in every region except for Champagne. I've been trying to buy a chateau in in France for over 10 years. Um, They're as rare as hen's teeth. But in Burgundy, they're a dime a dozen. There's every other region. Oh, really? Oh, I can get you one. Oh, please do. Please do. I, I can get you one. How much work do you want to do? Oh, <laughs> if you look at the big farmhouse behind me, you'll know that I'm, 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 not, I'm not afraid of work. Um, but, you know, a lot of champagne was destroyed, and that's very sad. So they just didn't have the funds to repair the building. So you see a lot of very simple architecture in champagne, which breaks my heart. But the region itself, when you get out of the main town that wasn't decimated by war, is really quite beautiful. There's lots of different cities and towns in Champagne, but just quickly, what are the top your top five that people should visit? Well, I think that where Jean Perignon first started in the Abbey of Courtevier, um, the Audevier town is very pretty. This is a region that was not affected by war. Thank goodness, touch wood. Um, it's a very beautiful town. I think that's a great place to start. The little village of Ayi, um, really the centre of winemaking, even before John Perrin's time in, in 1500s and 1600s. Um, but I also encourage people to sort of get, you know, Epinay is important, Hans is important, um, but get out. Most people stay in the main tourist towns. Um, you know, have a glass of champagne, pluck up some courage, get on the wrong side of the road and just hit the road, you know. Get out to all those beautiful regions. The sad thing is some of the most beautiful parts of Champagne are actually deep, deep down in the south, in the Cote de Bar, in the Orb, 
Um, you know, some of the most beautiful villages are really truly down in the south. They're actually closer to Burgundy than they are to the heart of Champagne, but most tourists never see it. It's, it's really quite sad. That's really where the picturesque parts of Champagne are. So onto the drink itself, just for somebody that's out there that has no idea what we're talking about, although I don't think there, anybody, there is anybody, but what is Champagne? So Champagne, first and foremost, is a region. So Champagne with a capital C is a place. It's a region in France. It's 34,500 hectares of some of the most expensive uh, land in the world. Um, Champagne is a wine, um, small C, is a wine that's been fermented once to turn the grapes into a still wine for the second time fermented inside the bottle. So you've got a bubbly, sparkly wine made to very exacting standards. It's aged for a certain period of time. It's made with certain grapes. Um, champagne is considered to be the most superior sparkling wine on the planet, and there's reasons for that. Part of it is geology, you know, where it sits in the world. Part of it is the human hand, how talented the generations of winemakers are. Um, and truly, it, it's a gift, you know. The, the position in the world, the geology, the human hand, the history, all comes together to make some of the most exquisite sparkling wine in the world. Do they use red or white grapes for champagne? So traditionally, we have three grapes that are grown within the Champagne region. We have a white grape, exactly as you know it, in a still white wine, and that grape is Chardonnay. And then what surprises people is that we actually have two red grapes that are grown within the Champagne region. Pinot Noir, red grape, exactly as you know it, is a still red wine. And then the other red grape, which is lesser known, is called Meunier. And Meunier, when you translate from French to English, translates to the miller. So the middle works for flower, and the reason that that grape has that name is that the, the leaf of the grape has a flowery white coating. Um, so we have Chardonnay, we have Pinot Noir, and we have Meunier. What the winemaker does is he cuts them off the, off the vine by hand because if he breaks the skin accidentally through machine or rough handling, we can bleed the colour of the skin into the grape, and we don't want that. The grapes are transported um, very quickly to the pressing centre, Chardonnay on its own, Pinot Noir on its own, and Meunier on its own. They're gently pressed. The skin of the grape is broken. We take out the white flesh. The flesh of the grape is always white. We discard the skin and then we ferment the Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir and the Meunier separately, turning them into white wines, even though they're from red grapes. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. So there's two red grapes in there. So how do they then make rosé champagne? Because I've seen that before. So it's like pink champagne. Is How do they make that? So the, the most common way of making rosé champagne is that for the first time they will take the Pinot Noir grape out of the vineyard, they break the skin, and for the first time they let the skin, which contains colour and tannin and aroma, macerate. They let it tango with the white flesh which is inside the grape. So for a period of time they're leaching out the colour from the skin into the white fleshy juice. It could be anywhere from 36 to 72 hours, essentially making a light red Pinot Noir style of wine. Now you've got a red wine and we've got a white wine base, just as we do in a white champagne. The technique is called assemblage. Everything sounds better in French, even me. I'm Kyla and I'm a killer in France. <laughs> oh, I can handle being a killer, a man killer. And um, we assemble. <laughs> and then we assemble the red wine and white wine together to make rosé. And it's totally up to the winemaker how deep or how light you'd like his rosé style to be. You have a house like Bilcar Samon, one of the pioneers of rosé champagne in the region who makes a really light and um, fresh rosé style. Really, they say that rosé is about texture and 
depth and aroma. It's not about the pinkness of the wine. Um, and then you have other houses like Runau, for example, who, who make a really intense rosé style. So it's very much up to the winemaker. Sugar is used in that fermented fermentation. I can't say the word. Fermentation. Fermentation process. There you go, Andrew. Sugar is – I lose my English whilst learning French. Um, well, that's my excuse anyway. Um, sugar is used in that fermentation process to make champagne. So does that mean that there's that there's sweet – like it's a sweet wine or is it – like you get dry champagnes, don't you? So are there drier and sweeter versions? 100%. We've got two places where we add sugar. One place where we add sugar, which is for technical reasons, so we take the grape off the vine. Grapes naturally have sugar. Anything, any fruit, any grain, anything that naturally contains sugar can be fermented because the real way winemaker is not the winemaker, it's yeast. So if you add sugar and yeast together, the yeast eats sugar and trigger this quite violent process called fermentation. And it's really quite rambunctious. It gets hot. It's, it bubbles and toils. And over a period of time, it turns into alcohol. So the level of sugar in a grape or in any fruit um, equates to how much alcoholic content you have. So in the first fermentation, we've got a grape. We crush it. It's got grape juice in there, natural sugars. And the yeast eat those and they turn it into a white wine. At this point, there's no sugar left. So when we put our white wine into the bottle to to, to trigger the second fermentation, we need to add more sugar. So we now add another dose of sugar and another dose of yeast. And just a little technical point, all champagnes are made to a certain bar of pressure, and that bar of pressure is six bars. To get to six bars, we need to add four grams of sugar per bar of pressure. So 24 grams of sugar goes in, a little bit of yeast, and we put a lid on it, and down it goes into the cellar to undergo secondary fermentation inside the bottle. So at this stage, the yeast eats all the sugar and the wine is completely dry. We've got to take that yeast out because it's like little breadcrumbs, okay? So the wriggling process begins. We roll the bottle from side to side, side to side, all the way inching it up onto its neck to plant on the tip of its uh, of its neck with all the yeast in the bottom of the neck. We freeze it, we open the bottle, shoots out this little pallet of frozen liquid and yeast and to top up the liquid that's been lost we inject a little more liquid but at this point we can add sugar purely for taste because champagne as a region is actually a it's a cool climate region champagne is a latitude it's quite normal you know quite quite northerly region it's a very cool climate region now of course we've got global warming and it's getting warmer every year but really it's cool so you have grapes that come off the vine that are high in acidity and low in sugar. So a little bit of sugar is added at this point purely to balance acidity, purely for flavour, and this is called a dosage. And the dosage, in terms of grams of sugar per litre at this point, determines the style of the champagne. We are tending more and more to extra brut, extra dry champagnes, or brut, which means a dry champagne. Um, so extra brut is anywhere up to, you know, six grams per litre of added sugar and a brut is six to 12 grams of, of sugar per litre. And that's the final part of influence that the winemaker has is that tiny last little addition of sugar. What's the origin story of Champagne? So in the Champagne region previously, really the heart of the Champagne region was a region called Ayi, A-Y, Ayi. Um, they made red wines. They made Pinot Noir, still red wines. And it wasn't until we had a young Dominican monk by the name of Dom Pierre Perignon. And Dom Pierre, of course, like many monks in his time, 
would be responsible for making wine. And wine was used in religious ceremony. It was used to serve the monks for lunch. It was used to, to serve to lonely travelers. But Don Pierre Perignon in the Hauteville Abbey of Champagne had an issue with his wines. This is the late 1500s, okay, actually probably more 1600s. It started to sparkle. You know, it started to bubble. And then, of course, the glass wasn't as strong as it was now. And, of course, when you've got a little bit of pressure occurring naturally in the bottles, the bottles were exploding. And they were setting off this wild chain reaction in the cellars and all the bottles were exploding. So Dom Perignon thought, gosh, I think my wines are possessed. So they were, you know, really trying to figure out how to get the bubbles out of champagne. And look, I worked with Dom Perignon for a long period of time. And honestly, you know, the story may have been told a little differently whilst I was working at Dom Perignon, but really the, the bubbles were a nuisance. They weren't intentional. But at some point in time, Dom Perignon said, okay, this is this secondary. So what had happened was the, the winemaker put yeast in the bottle. He was fermenting his wine and, you know, the cycles would roll around and, um, you know, really what was happening was the, the, the region was so cool in Champagne, the yeast hadn't finished it finished doing its job. You know, yeast needs a certain temperature to ferment. There's natural cycles. And because of the onset of winter so quickly in Champagne, the yeast had gone to sleep, got become dormant, then spring rolls around, the yeast wake up and they go, oh, have not eat all the sugar yet? Quick, 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 let's finish our job. But then it's creating this carbonation inside the bottle. The bottles are exploding and setting off these wild chain reactions. It was indeed Dom Perignon who was the godfather of Champagne because he discovered, well, you know, what if I add more yeast into the bottle? Can I capture this bubble? But then I'm going to need stronger glass, so let's get that from England because I heard they grow beer. And then the corks are shooting out, so let's try and use you trying to catch the, the cork on the end. So it was a process of creation and mastery, and that's really where sparkling wine began. But it was illegal to transport sparkling wine, wine in those days, you know, so it was dangerous. And it wasn't until one of the kings of France changed the laws and allowed the transportation of champagne that the industry began. And alas, we have uh, Henri Runar coming to the party and launching the first champagne house of all time. There's champagne houses. Now, what's meant by that term? Mm -hmm. You have different classifications. You know, and back in the day, what happened was you had a champagne house who made the champagne. And you had a grower who grew the fruit and sold their fruit to the house. They often didn't do both. Okay, so they were very distinct. The houses would make the champagne and buy the fruit off the growers, and then the growers wouldn't make the wine. They just sold their grapes to the, the big houses. And in the 1900s, around sort of 1910, the houses became very big and very powerful because they're making a lot of money, and the growers weren't really making much at all. And then the houses went out and hired these men called commissionaries who were, you know, they were paid and, and rewarded according to how cheap they could get the grapes off these growers. But they started to use tactics like intimidation and bullying and bribery. And, and if that all, and if all else fails, they were buying grapes from the Loire Valley and other parts of France and even Spain and Portugal. So it became a real mess. Um, and in actual fact, the greatest war of all that happened in the Champagne region is never spoken about, and it's the war where the growers turned on the Champagne houses. It was a violent, bloody battle that took place for two years, and the French government had to step in and set standards and boundaries and said, okay, stop everybody. I'm going to set a price per kilo for grapes. If you're in this region, this region, and this region, you get this price, and if you're here, here, and here, you get this price. And this is how the Echelle de Cru rating system was developed Grand Cru regions were classified, Premier Cru regions, and other Cru. And if you were in the Grand Cru, you got 
100% of dollar value of euro value of the grape. And if you're premium crew, you've got between 80 and 99% or 80 and 90% and then other crew was below that. So there was this sort of classification system um, that was put in place by the government and that's when the region was very tightly defined. You weren't allowed to grow or buy grapes from anywhere outside of the Champagne region. Um, so then there was a big divide between the growers and the houses and that's when the grower revolution started because these growers are like, well, you know what? I don't want to sell my grapes to those houses anymore. I'm now going to make my own wine, put my own family name on the bottle and so begins the revolution of a grower Champagne, which we love. Oh, I didn't know any of this. This is this is what's fabulous about fabulously delicious. We get to hear experts speak on things that they're passionate and know a lot about, like yourself. Now, something that you might be able to clear up for me as well is about sparkling wines. So, champagne is essentially a sparkling wine that comes from champagne, but if it's made somewhere else, we can't call it champagne. What's that about? Yeah, this has been a, a long-running, um, highly contentious um, topic. I mean, Champagne was one of the first to really stamp its mark as an AOC or a classified area. Um, if you look at the composition of the Champagne Committee, so you've got the CRVC Committee, which is professional, to run the Champagne. They are the body that protect um, Champagne. You know, they have scientists they have marketing team, but really mostly they're lawyers. <laughs> they're defending the brand of champagne, I can assure you. I mean, they, they do, they, they're true. They have scientists, they have people within there looking at climate change. They have people looking at what yeast is used. I mean, they're really they're the champagne police. They go into the cellars and go, well, have you really been aging for, for a minimum of 18 months? And are you using the right yeast? And have you met minimum requirements? I mean, you can't just go and plant a vine in the champagne region if you own land there. You know, just because you're in Champagne doesn't mean you can make Champagne. If your vines already weren't part of the designated map, then forget about it. Um, so there's a very strict classification which sets a certain standard for the quality of Champagne. And if you meet those standards and you're within that boundary, then you can put Champagne on your label. Um, they set out and they receive global trademark classifications. The only country that really flaunts that uh, is America. There was a certain piece of American legislation that said that if you were using champagne on your label pre sort of 1970 or something along those lines, then you were allowed to keep it. But much to the uh, chagrin, the, the sort of contentious um, nature of the CIBC, they're not happy with that ruling and there's a lot of litigation that goes on around the world. In fact, the CIBC even litigated against people within champagne for using the word champagne. So then does that mean that there's other sparkling wines in other regions of France? 100%. I mean, you've got um, Limou, for example, fantastic um, sparkling wine region. And, and in actual fact, you know, many people talk about John Perignon being first, but, um, and, and actually I can correct myself, John Perignon was late 1600s, so Limou was sort of mid-1500s in terms of their months first producing sparkling wine. Did they know? Did John Perignon, John, John Perignon know? I mean, there were no email and no sort of mail and... Uh, the World Wide Web at that point. So did he know that there were monks in the moon uh, making sparkling wine? Who knows? Um, but yes, there are. There are wonderful examples of sparkling wine, but there's a certain type of topography and geography and climate that just makes champagne perfect for making sparkling wine. And um, it's very hard to replicate those conditions anywhere in the world. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm off to Tasmania next week and um, there's actually a really strong relationship between Tasmania and some of the winemakers in France and often 
when the Champenois come to Australia, they do go to Tasmania and spend time with our sparkling wine producers. So there's a lot of share of knowledge and share of know-how, but you can't replicate the climate of the Champagne region. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've seen in the news, there's been quite a bit about it in France recently, about Cornwall in the UK beating Champagne in awards around the world. Now, I don't know what that's about. Like, is it global warming? Is it Brexit? But apparently it's in... That part of like, well, in Cornwall has the same soil as, or the same uh, topography sort of thing of whatever they call it for the the actual soil, the terroir, so to speak. Um, and because of climate change, it's getting warmer there, and it's becoming more like the climate in Champagne. So that's interesting. Are you going to be the Cornwall, the Cornwall dame in the future? Do you think in twenty, thirty years time? So this. Interesting, and I may be being courted by some of these producers right now. Um, yes, it is fascinating. I'm not putting my Cornwall crown on just yet, but let me tell you. Um, so my partner, funnily enough, is a winemaker by practice and studied at a college in this region, and his alumni are the best sparkling wine producers in England. So I know them quite well through him. It's just a coincidence that, you know, he was of a particular alumni of winemaker in England who are the head of Nightingale, are the head of Hattingley. So we're talking the best sparkling wine producers of our generation in England. Um, I have seen many examples um, of sparkling wine from England um, and I've been watching them and we've been approached. I, I own um, a champagne business. We have been approached numerous times by some of our English counterparts to stock their wines. And I've looked at it. I, I have. I've looked at the business model. I've looked at the wines. They're not yet. They're not there yet. Um, there are some structural differences on the palate. There is different acidity. Um, you've got to think that terroir is a word that, that refers to all the conditions of the vineyard that make a grape and a wine a certain way you know, topography, the aspect of the vine to the sun, um, what's underneath the soil. And, yes, the same chalk belt flows all the way through under the channel and into England, this is true, climate, but it also includes the human hand. Terroir includes a human hand. This is often forgotten about. Now, our English friends only started in the last 50 years. Our champagne wine, champagne wine our winemakers in Champagne started 250 years ago. Um, they've got a disadvantage in that they started so recently. The land ex is expensive. They don't have cellars underground. It's just a difference. It truly is a difference. There's a difference in know-how. There's a difference in climate ever so slightly. They're not there yet, but trust me, let's watch this space. It could be very, very interesting. But what's interesting is that they'll always be more expensive, in my opinion. The, Brit the British sparkling wines will always be more expensive than champagne. And are you going to move from champagne to English sparkling? What's Emperor Champagne? Emperor is our online store. So um, as I was presenting, as so when I left, so when I, so if we backtrack and look at my career, I moved to Paris in 2005. Um, you know, in 2005, I read this article on Napoleon Bonaparte that just caught my interest and really piqued my curiosity. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to read a book on Champagne. And I read this book and I devoured it. I ate that book, you know. And then I was like, God, give me another one. Please give me another one. And I looked around. I bought another book. And then I bought another book and another book. And pretty soon I'd read every book there was to, to read on champagne. And now I'm searching for obscure pieces of literature. You know, that's my sort of investigative nature. 
And I read a book called The Art and Business of Champagne. It's a really quite obscure publication. And the, the journalist details who was a winemaker in Champagne was in the back of the book. And I just thought, I'll, it. I'll, I'll write him a letter, you know. I'll put all the questions and curious points that I have and I'll pen and paper it and I'll put it in the mailbox and I thought nothing more of it. And at this point in time, I'm working in investment banking and I'm, I've got my fiancé and I've got the dog and the big fat house and it's all going on. And, you know, six weeks later I got a letter back from France and, um, you know, he said, you know, I'm not answering your questions in writing. Get on a plane, come out to Paris and come and I'll teach you everything I know. And, and I thought, gosh, um, this doesn't happen every day. It's one of those sliding doors opportunities and I'm going to walk right through it. Uh, I, bought a, I left my partner, I, you know, gave my dog away, I sold my house, I packed up my furniture and bought a one-way ticket to Paris and spent nine months in the region and before getting, you know, a knock on the door with LVMH, who are the biggest champagne houses of all time. And, you know, I was recruited in Paris and trained to be a dame of champagne whilst living in Paris and eventually transferred back to Sydney. But when I became independent as Champagne Dame, I was presenting, presenting, presenting all these weird and wonderful obscure champagne houses, which are really the gem of the region. And then people were like, where can I buy it? But you couldn't. And by Christmas, you know, I was waist high in my house of all these champagnes that people had ordered. So I thought, mm, there's a business here. So emperorchampagne.com.au, which is our retail site, really is um, one of the largest retailers of champagne in the Southern Hemisphere. We have the biggest selection almost of champagnes in the world and we sell um, champagne to, to champagne lovers all over Australia. Emily in Paris, it's taken the world by storm. Everybody loves it or hates it, one of the two. But, of course, there's this champagne house that they come up with the idea for marketing that we're just going to splash the champ buy the bottle to splash the champagne over everybody. I mean, seriously, is, to people... Is there really a champagne that they're doing that? Um, the answer is yes. And so can I tell you oh, that really? when I first watched that show, and I'm not going to tell you all my secrets, but when I first moved to Paris, my life was way more exciting than Emily in Paris. I watched it the first time and I'm like, oh, boring. And my friends are like, give her a chance, give her a chance, give her a chance. Like it's a girlfriend, give her a chance. Um, because Oh, my God, how much do I tell? Well, I met someone very famous when I first moved to Paris and, um, and my life was very extravagant and I met a Sadie Arabian prince and I dated him for a while and I dated a guy who had a big nightclub and um, my life is very extravagant. You know, when I look back now at some of the parties I went to and some of the people I met and, you know, what I wore, and I, I am definitely Emily in Paris. That was my life. Um, and someday I will write the book, but I won't do it until I finish presenting because it was very colourful and very extravagant. Um, yes, there are, and even when I was dating the prince, actually, you know, when we were in nightclubs um, and he would buy, and one of my, my friends, one friend in particular, he'd go, oh, can I be a bill tourist? Can I be a bill tourist? And at the, we'd look at the bill at the end of the night, and we're talking 30,000, 40,000 euros a night, um, it's a lot of money. And like he was buying these champagnes that you could never replace. And we're in the nightclubs and everyone's sort of spraying it. And I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> I'm sort of down low, swilling and sniffing and trying to take it slow. And I'm like, my God, you can't ever see this again. Like this champagne will never be replaced. Um, so yes, and you know, bless him, but I've got a friend um, in the Cayman Islands and He's opening a big nightclub at the moment and I'm helping him with the champagne list. And he's like, you know, I put drains in the floor and, you know, we're just going to buy champagne to spray everywhere. 
Um, so <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not actually gonna drink. <laughs> we're not actually gonna drink it. And you know, I had a friend of mine who got back from Vale last week. Actually, I saw this customer today. He's a very successful man in Melbourne, and I hand deliver his champagne. Is that is that important? And um, he said, "Oh, there's this bar in in Vale where." you know you kind of ring this girl so the person who buys the most champagne in the bar and sprays it everywhere they don't drink it you know you get to ring this girl so it's true champagne is going to waste people it's been fabulous talking to you i just want to have a a little note here if you're the producers of the real housewives of melbourne are listening if carla's unavailable at any stage i also dated a saudi prince (laughs) And have uh, been in nightclubs throwing around uh, champagne whilst living here in France. Of course I have, totally. And I used to live in Montalbert, which is sort of close to Turak. So, you know, just look me up, look me up. Carla, it's been fabulous talking to you. Finally, the question I ask everybody on Fabulously Delicious, and that is what's the most fabulous thing about France to you? Mm, can I say the men? Um, no, let's say the food. No, I mean, for me, it's France. I, I love the way the French live. The French live in a way where you, um, you know, you work to live. You don't live to work. We, we have it the opposite way around in Australia. The French people take time. They take pleasure. Everything's slow. Everything's enjoyed. Everything's intentional. And we just don't do that in other countries. And there's a certain passion that goes into everything they do and i love that carla you've been fabulous talking to us and teaching us all about champagne carla kapatrick thank you for joining us on fabulously delicious today thank you for having me it's been a pleasure merci beaucoup hello and welcome to novel conversations a podcast about the world's greatest stories i'm your host frank lavallo And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. 